one of the most attended church days of the year. And thank you for choosing to be here to honor our God who is more powerful than death. In light of Easter, I want to share a story I read about uh, the three people who died and arrived at the pearly gates. <clears throat> Guess who was there to meet him? Peter. I don't know why he's the designated <laughs> greeter. I think it would be Hunter. <laughs> Hunter's multilingual. It would help. Uh, so Peter begins his orientation with a question. He says, what would you like most to hear from your family and friends? What would you like to hear from them say about you at your funeral? Well, the first person said, I would be most gratified to hear them say, I lived a useful life. I was a, a good doctor. I was a family man. The second person said, I would be happy to hear them say, I was an excellent teacher, committed wife and mother, and a positive influence in the community. The first, third person said, I would like him to hear them say, look, he's moving. <laughs> I guess in the first century, when Jesus was walking around, he would have been the most sought-after guest at funerals. Best we can tell, he ruined every funeral he attended by raising whomever had supposedly died. <laughs> the man could run a funeral in a heartbeat. He even ruined his own funeral. I don't get the idea that Jesus' followers expected things to turn out the way they did on this day we called Good Friday. Death came sooner than they expected for Jesus. And there was a cross sticking up along the roadside with his name on it for everyone to see. And not only did Jesus die, but his, his followers had dreams of their own that died alongside him that same day. Dreams of defeating the Romans, dreams of being in charge, dreams of being important, maybe unforgettable. And I wonder, as I think about that, uh, what do you do when your dreams die? Where do you turn when hope seems pretty futile? What are you supposed to do when you leave for college and a few months later your parents leave each other? What do you do when your favorite grandparent gets cancer and leaves you behind? What do you do when your manager calls you in, gives you the news you don't want to hear, and you have one hour to leave the building? I've always wondered why we call the day Jesus died Good Friday. It doesn't seem like anything good happened that day. I guess what is good about it is that Friday isn't the last day. Jesus' death on Friday lets us know that bad things will happen to us. Bad things will happen around us. But Friday isn't the end of the story. In the words of Tony Campalo, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Let's go back in time and try to relive the event that changed all of history. Judah Smith describes it this way. Right after Jesus' death, the Roman government is relieved because the guy who sparked so much civil unrest was no longer their problem. The Pharisees were ecstatic because their competition had just been eliminated. And the disciples were terrified and confused because this was not at all how they visual, visualized things working out. In Matthew 28, we read that early on Sunday morning as the day was dawning, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Can we even begin to imagine the experience Mary Magdalene had on Jesus' resurrection morning? It's still very dark in the morning when Mary comes to the tomb, not just physically, but emotionally, and for her, spiritually. Jesus is more than just a friend. He gives hope for Israel's future, and not just to her, but to an entire nation. And then suddenly he dies He's buried on Friday, and she's concerned about the body because the body is all she has left. Everything happens so quickly. So she comes to his tomb. 
Maybe she just needs to feel near him in some way. Even though her dreams come crashing down, even though he's no living spiritual resource anymore, still he is someone that she loves, and still there's the body. But when she arrives at the grave, the body is gone, and then more darkness hits. I suppose everyone has times of darkness, both emotional and spiritual. You muster up the courage to look at your grade online, and it's not what you had hoped for, and here comes the darkness. You get an email that you've been waiting for, but it's not what you hoped for, another rejection letter from another grad school, another job opportunity, and here comes the darkness. Maybe a lot of little things have been, haven't been going your way, and it's beginning to pile up and get backed up, and it's, it's just hard to ignore it anymore, and it pushes you to a place of darkness. Or perhaps you're in a season of not being understood, not being heard, and you're starting to feel forgotten. Darkness may hit simply because you don't have any time to yourself. Someone is always tugging you all day long. In Mary's darkness, she doesn't realize that she isn't alone. Peering into the tomb, she first sees two people sitting there. And apparently, she doesn't know they are angels. Her eyes are swollen with tears. And they ask her, what are you looking for? And before those words die out, another question says, comes to her, why, why are you crying? It seems kind of like a dumb question. They buried him on Friday, and she comes to be near his body, but there is no body. It's, it's missing. I mean, just imagine your friend was buried, and three days later you go to the cemetery to find the caskets dug up. Mary says these words in John 20. She says, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. They've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. There's, there's such a feeling of lostness in her words. And the pause must be electrifying before the next word comes. She thinks he is a stranger. She can't see in the early morning darkness. And then he says her name, Mary, don't be afraid. And when he says her name, everything in the world changes. She knows that he is alive, alive after being dead, which means he will never be dead again, and she will never be alone in the dark, afraid, and don't, don't miss what happens here. He knows Mary's name, and he knows your name, and he knows my name, and he tells each of us by name, don't be afraid. There are a lot of us who need to hear that word from a risen Lord today. We have so many reasons to be fearful. Inflation, corporate insecurity, bank failures, viruses, storms, wars, unstable political leaders, moral degradation, a 16-year-old daughter driving for the first time, and a 90-year-old granddad who won't let go of his keys. There's a lot of reasons to be afraid. We have no shortage of reasons. But get this, if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, no situation is hopeless. No situation is lost. For three days, Mary grieves. But on Sunday morning, she hears a voice that rocks her to the core and changes her forever. Jesus' resurrection opens the door of hope and faith because what God did once in a graveyard in Jerusalem, he is able to do again in my life. Against all odds, the irreversible can be reversed. And here's the message to us on Easter morning. God is still turning crucifixions into resurrections. 
This message makes all the difference in the world to know that Jesus is alive. It makes a difference when it comes to telling people about your faith. It's the difference between giving someone a history lesson and talking about a living relationship with a living Savior. You can't keep that quiet. It makes a difference in dealing with temptation and sin. You have something to strive for that's bigger than yourself. Jesus says, Mary, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What is it you're afraid of? Too many of us live our lives tyrannized by fear. People are afraid of cancer. We're worried about influences in our community that are destroying families. Some of you are worried about getting a job when you graduate, paying off school loans. Some of you may be uptight about finding someone to spend your life with. What is it? What is it that you're afraid of? In 1998, I ran the uh, New York City Marathon. It was a really cool way to see the city. You ran through all five boroughs, and it's the only time I've been to New York. And Mark, I really don't care to go back. <laughs> and I, I know, I know, no offense or anything, but um, after after the the evening after that race, uh, we walked slowly. I walked slowly, about two blocks to this Times Square church. There were a couple of thousand people there. It's very diverse, very unique. And I wrote some thoughts about visiting that church, and I remember hearing two words over and over, sovereignty and covenant. And their prayers, their songs, the sermon, those two words were important words for that group of people to hear. Sovereignty says, don't be afraid. God is in control. It's a big issue on the streets in the city to know who's in control. And covenant says, don't be afraid. God will never abandon you. Another big issue in the inner city where it seems like promises are rarely kept. Sovereignty and covenant. I needed those two words just riding in the taxis. It's important words. On several of the campus ministries during spring break trips we took over the years, we spent a, a week hanging out with kids who live in an inner city environment. We worked in poverty-stricken areas. Families were poor. Children were hungry. We spent time in San Antonio and Dallas, uh, L.A., Seattle. One of the hardest parts of these trips for the college students was the anticipation of leaving, and not necessarily leaving the kids they've gotten to know behind, but leaving them again, because the students got it. They understood something about these kids' situation. People leaving is what those kids experience way too often. Covenant is significant. Promises are powerful. Promises change people, both when you keep them and when you don't. People are impacted by promises kept and promises broken. Just ask the kids whose parents are no longer together. God never breaks a, breaks a promise, and God is always in control. The first thing Jesus says after his resurrection is, don't be afraid. He wants to take your hopeless situation, whatever it may be, addiction, Unpaid bills, too much debt, empty relationships, dull, purposeless, daily living. And he wants to infuse you with resurrection power. So you won't have to look back. You won't have to glance over your shoulder in fear. You don't have to keep scoring relationships. So you can beat whatever habits are holding you down. Here's some words that Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Our life does not have to be tyrannized by fear. You don't have to be afraid anymore. The risen Christ says we don't have to live our lives in bondage to fear any longer. God has a word for the anxious. Don't be afraid. There's hope for you. Peter's words are, we've been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this text, Peter tells us we have a sovereign God who promises hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Sovereignty and covenant. Two principles inherent with God, which we need every day. We serve a God who says, don't be afraid. I'll be with you till the end of the world. I will not leave you as orphans. So what is it in your life that seems irreversible? How have your hopes, your dreams, your expectations, how have your rights been crucified? With the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, God wants to turn your crucifixion into a resurrection. Because Jesus lives, your situation can be changed. But more importantly, the real miracle is that you can be changed. If resurrection is simply a doctrine to be, to be believed, an historical fact, a, a nice Easter story that never gets any more real than the Easter egg hunt after church, if that's what we think about the resurrection, our worship will seldom, if ever, lift us up to the presence of God. Until the reality of a living Messiah begins to permeate what we do and who we are and how we dream and every day that we live, worship will be nothing more than a formality. Perhaps... God chose a meal as a means of communion with him because meals are an everyday event for us. They are at the heart of our survival. He could have chosen a chant, a secret handshake, a dance, but he didn't. Instead, God speaks his message through a meal right where we live every day. A meal is so ordinary, an ordinary part of every day of our lives. Maybe God's telling us he wants to be part of the ordinary day-to-day moments in our lives. But then, you know, how can any moment be ordinary if we're motivated by the resurrection of Jesus? These words are familiar from Ephesians 2, but I'd like to read this paragraph. Um, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the, na- the cravings of our sinful nature and following us desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were, what? Even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not by works so no one can boast for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What I hear in this text is this. God takes each one of us right where we are. As we come to believe in him, he brings life to our deadness. 
As we come to believe in him, he brings growth to what was barren before. He resurrects our hopelessness and places us in his church where we become part of something holy, a community who believes in a living Savior and follows a living Lord. The sacrificial aspect of Jesus' death is very personal to us also. The cross is where forgiveness and mercy and grace are found. Jesus' resurrection tells us no hole is too deep to crawl out of. No sin is too serious for his sacrifice. Addictions don't have to last forever. And we don't have to be afraid any longer. Our dreams may crash on day one. And our hopes may die on day one. On day two, it may seem like guards have been posted at the tomb where our dreams and hopes are buried with no way in and no way out. But let me tell you, day three is God's day. He is known for third day surprises. I want to take a moment and remember a few of these third day stories. John Orberg in his book, No Doubt, helped me think through some of these third day stories. Third day stories are all about crisis. The situation is so bleak that if God doesn't show up, it's over. It's a wrap. It's, there's no hope whatsoever. Let's think about some of these. When Joseph was in prison, he said to Pharaoh's cupbearer, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And he did. When Israel was enslaved, Moses asked Pharaoh, let us take a three-day journey into the desert. And he let him. And when Israelites make it to Mount Sinai, here's what God said to Moses. Go tell the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on what? The third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. When Israel was threatened with genocide, Queen Esther said she would fast for three days and go to the king to seek deliverance for her people. And then there's Jonah. He's in the belly of the fish for how long? Three days. He prayed for three days. Help me come out the same way I came in. In Hosea, you'll, you'll catch that one later. <laughs> in Hosea, the prophet says this, come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He's injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. From Ortberg's book, the third day is God's day. The third day is the day when prisoners of Pharaoh get set free. The third day is the day when the people come to the mountains and the mountains shake and the rivers are parted and the people go into the promised land. The third day is when the harem girls like Esther face down powerful kings. The third day is when prophets like Jonah are dropped off a seaside port by a giant fish. The third day is the day when idols like Dagon come, come, come tumbling down and God starts coming home to his people. The third day is the day stones are rolled away. The third day is the day a crucified carpenter comes back to life. You never know what God is going to do because God is a third day God. Think about this for a moment. A small band of frightened men and women said, we don't know what happened, but the third day came. And because of that third day, those men and women became this church where people would, in spite of their fear, be hung on a cross, be pierced by swords. They would give up their lives. If the third day weren't true, if anybody could have produced a pile of bones, if anybody could have explained the empty tomb, all of them would have been more than willing to stay on the sidelines. They all would have been content to hover in the shadows. Nobody is going to die for a pile of bones, but for a third day God, people will give their lives. An empty tomb changes everything. 
You never know why it might happen on the third day. That's why we hope. That's why we believe. That's why we cling to the truth of an empty tomb. We live in a second-day world, but we're leaning on a third-day God. Is your second-day life one that's overwhelmed with the pain of dying dreams and broken promises and crucified hopes? God has a way of turning crucifixions into resurrections, and he'll do it for you if you want it. If you're willing to let go of the past, and let, let go of being in control, let go of anxieties and fears or whatever else you need to let go of. Jesus' resurrection is what changed the disciples' perspective as they sat in a locked room talking about what had just happened. In one sense, nothing had changed. Rome still occupied Palestine. The religious leaders still had a bounty on their head. Death and evil still reigned outside the doors. Philip Yancey writes a great line I want to share with you. Gradually, he writes, gradually, however, the shock of recognition gave way to a long, slow undertow of joy. And they thought, if God could do that. If God could do that. You know, March Madness is the season for being amazed at comebacks and surprise buzzer beaters. Uh, the San Diego State game against Florida Atlantic was a lot of fun to watch. San Diego State came back from being 14 points behind, one on, one on a last-second bucket. There was so much excitement on the court when they celebrated that win. And that was a great comeback. And, you know, for us Kentucky folks, we have to think back a little ways to pull something out. Uh, and though it wasn't in March, one of the greatest comebacks in college basketball history happened in 1994. UK was down 31 points with 15 minutes and 30 seconds left in the second half at where? There you go. I knew you would know. They came back and won. I mean, what a stunning finish. Everybody had turned the channel and gone to bed, you know, and they missed it. I guess some may consider the resurrection a great comeback story. And in one sense, it is. Jesus literally comes back from the dead. So, I mean, yes. But here's something to never forget, and, and don't miss this. The resurrection isn't a comeback story for the ages. It can't be because God is never behind. He's never behind. What is it you would like to be? What, what irreversible situation do you long for God to heal? What impossible circumstance would you like God to restore? Jesus' resurrection says to us, it's still possible. It's still possible. No situation is hopeless. And he says, don't be afraid. God is still in the business of turning crucifixions into resurrections. It might be beneficial for you to take a few moments sometime today and think about how you would like to finish this sentence. God, I'm hoping for a third day experience in this area of my life. You just think about that. What area is it? I'd still... I'm hoping for a third-day experience in this area of my life. Maybe you're in a place where you need a third-day third God to do something amazing, totally unexpected. I'm also guessing a few of you may be here today, and you've experienced the surprising work of a third-day God in your life. Tell somebody about that today, this week. We need to hear it. Listen, we, we serve a God of the third day. We live daily with the hope of this thought if God could do that, just imagine. Just imagine what he could do with your life. Just imagine what he could do with my life, what he could do with his church, what he could do with your family, with your influence. Just imagine what he could do with your life.
If you'd like to pray with someone personally about the need for new life and hope, maybe a renewed vision of God's sovereignty and covenant, his promise keeping, just let us know. We would feel privileged to do that. And never forget, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Let's stand together and sing.